Go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, page 309 in your pew Bibles. As, of course, if you do not have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. Uh, now, I picked on a few people for the service, but some of y'all aren't sitting in your pre-assigned seat. What is going on? I don't like this at all, right? John, have you done something again? I don't like this. Osmosis, that's a big word for you, John. I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah, well, if even Louisville could beat Ball State, so I wouldn't be that excited. Well, I mean, we did just beat Georgia Tech. I didn't even know they had a football team, so it may be the only win we get this season, but we got one, so don't feel too bad. Where are you? Where's that voice come from? There he is. I'm deaf in one ear. I can. De- Why are you sitting on that side? You're one of them I'm picking on. <laughs> All right. First Kings chapter eight, page three hundred nine. If you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. I want to read verses twelve to twenty-one as we work our way through what is a real climax in the Hebrew Bible. Verse twelve. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while the the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to which to build a house, that my name might be there. I chose David to be over my people, Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promises that he made, for I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask as always that you would open our hearts and our minds, and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Transform us through the word that we believe, that we may become more like Jesus. Invite us into your presence and thereby be forever changed. In the name of your glorious Son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I don't want to intimidate anyone here, but uh, I used to be a ninja, uh, a real-life ninja. Um, when when uh, my brother and I were, were kids, we, of course, were in karate and all that, and we watched all of the karate movies from Ninja Turtles to... To, 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 to everything else, right? And we, so we went out and we got us some ninja costumes and we really believed that we were ninjas and we would sneak around and, and all that sort of stuff thinking that we could be quiet like the ninjas on the telly and we could be uh, as, as ferocious as those ninjas, even though they were bad guys in Ninja Turtles. But we were convinced we were ninjas. And it came to head one year for Christmas. 
One year that uh, we didn't have Christmas at my parents' house, we rather had it at my grandfather's house. If my memory serves me right, it was the year my grandmother had died, and we didn't want him to have Christmas uh, home alone. And so we, we uh, Santa Claus conveniently knew we weren't going to be uh, anointed, we were going to be in Warsaw. And so he brought all the presents uh, to us there in Warsaw. But every year, my, my brother and I, we would try to figure out a way that we could sneak into the living room where all the presents were without mom and dad knowing. Right? My brother was particularly the ringleader in this. He would go in and he would try to unwrap the presents, see what he got, and wrap them back. Right? And then we'd scurry back to bed until, you know, mom and dad uh, woke up. Right? But this year at my grandfather's house, we thought we have a foolproof plan. We would dress up as ninjas. And we would go in there and sneak in there and no one would see us. The one problem was in my grandfather's hallway, it's a small hallway, he had a sensor that let everybody know when someone was in the hallway. It wasn't very loud, but it was loud enough. And we thought, well, this is why we got to dress as ninjas. If we keep the lights off and we're dressed from head to toe in black and we just sneak around uh, like a ninja, the sensor will never catch us. So one by one, we... We sneak through the hallway. We knew where all the floorboards would creak and stuff. And we would go through and we made it just to the edge of the hallway. We can see the presence there 10 feet away. We are almost to the promised land. And we heard the sound of the sensor go off. And then we discovered my father had spent the entire night sleeping in a chair in front of the presence waiting for our arrival. <laughs> And all he said was, his eyes closed, of course, boys, go to bed. That was it. I didn't think he woke up, right? I mean, I just parted the dream. Right? You, know, you, know, you parents know, right? You parents know. You got a little baby, baby starts to cry, you're still asleep. You're just rocking them, right? You, you know how it is. It's what dad was doing. Now, uh, in our house, because of events like that, mom and dad every year had to come up with a way to keep us out of the living room. It was sacred space, if, if, if you will. One memorable year, uh, other than the ninjas, was mom and dad put a giant bell on, the, on our outside door so that when, now they didn't tell us they did this, when we opened the door in a hurry, it would ring the bell. And thus wake up our parents where they would yell at us again. Some things in life, I guess, are unapproachable. Of course, the problem with our uh, Christmas activities is, is that we wanted to go, but we weren't invited. We weren't invited yet. But once we were invited, we were free to act like animals on Christmas morning. There's no order to it. Just rip everything open and enjoy the gifts that were at the foot of the tree. So long as we were invited, we were free. Free to enjoy the same is true in chapter 8 as it regards the presence of God. We've, we've, we've looked at this uh, last week that uh, the, the order of chapter 8 is, is, is a chiasm, right? So, so where you start is where you end. So it's A, B, C, B, A sort of format. And, and you can see that, that what we're doing is we're seeing is, is, is how does one uh, approach the presence of God? And we saw last week the issue was that of atonement. Without being cleansed by the blood of the land, we, lamb, we cannot come into the presence of God. This week we see in verses 12 to 21 how we are called uh, or the way that we can enter the presence of God is by being invited by God into his presence. If, if, if we saw last week that by faith we are cleansed, it is by invitation we come to the presence 
of God. Let's start here in verses 12 through 13 with the condescension, the condescension, right? You see there in, in, in verse 12 what Solomon says. Uh, some of your translation will have this poetic format. I think that's the best way to see it. It's a type of psalm. The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. Now, that's interesting language, isn't it? That God would dwell in a thick, dark cloud, your translation may suggest. Now, this thick darkness is how God, throughout the Old Testament, has veiled himself, right? Just to give you two reference points here um, in uh, Psalm 1811 and Psalm 97. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Of course, dark clouds with water is, is, is a cloud. Uh, Psalm 97, two, clouds and thick darkness are all around me. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Clearly, God, God reveals himself, veils himself, we should say, in this thick cloud. By the way, it may be noteworthy that Psalm 18 is a psalm of David, the father of Solomon. The language implies that though God uh, it was available, he was hidden. And he is hidden because man cannot be in the presence of God. And if you read the Old Testament, God often veils himself when he appears. With Moses, he was veiled in a fire. With the Jews, he was veiled in a cloud by day, fire by night. We could even say, spoiler alert, I usually save this for the end, but spoiler alert, this is how we experience Christ, isn't it? Is not the incarnation the veiling of God? After all, we sing every Christmas, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. And was it not at the Mount Transfiguration where the incarnate Son of God unveiled himself in all of his glory to his disciples? To the point that they were in awe and their jaw was hanging out, not knowing what to say. God has veiled himself, Solomon says, in this dark cloud, this thick darkness. But then you can see the contrast, verse 13. I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. In contrast, whereas God had veiled himself in thick darkness, now he has condescended to dwell among his people. And Solomon brags about this, this exalted house he has built for God. And, he is, and then the irony is he is describing the one Who's, who has the earth as his footstool, right? We should see that, right? Solomon is bragging about the beauty of his temple, but he's inviting one who, who is much more glorious and more powerful and more, more massive, infinite than this building, right? That's the beauty of, 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 of the text, that it is both and. And this is the mystery of divine condescension. Now that word, is a weird word in, in, for us to use, right? Because the word uh, condescension is a pejorative. We, we will say to someone, you are condescending or that you've got a condescending attitude. Those aren't compliments. Those are criticisms. Theologically, however, when we speak of God condescending, it, it, it helps us to meditate on the beautiful mystery of how an infinite God can dwell among the finite. He condescends himself. Scripture declares God to be infinite, eternal, holy, righteous, glorious, and all-powerful. He is our all-wise creator who sits above the cherubim and rules the nations with absolute and unquestioned sovereignty. Yet, he condescends to us. 
If you're a dad here, I think you could really appreciate this because we dads are better at this than you moms. Let's just be honest. Because every dad loves that when they have kids, you realize once they get a little bit of thickness on them, right? The infant stage, you can't do this. But a little bit of toddler in them, oh, it's wrestling time in the household, right? You're going to pay your wife to go shopping, right? Hey, give me a few hours. I got to work on the rock bottom on the youngest, right? Right? You pull out the, 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 the thickest mattress you have, the one with the most bounce, right? And you grab the kids, right? And you're going you're gonna to off the top rope, you know, elbow, you know, all that sort of stuff, right? Now, now, think about it. When you wrestle with your kids, are you giving your all? N- no, no. For you young guys who, no. The answer to that is no, okay? No, you're not going to do that. Rather, you're going to condescend yourself. You're going to you know, get in your move and they're going to run into you. You're going to fall back on the mattress. You're going to say, oh, you got me. You pinned me down. And, and the sister's going to come and say, one, two, three, little brother wins. Now, did little brother win? No. No. But you're going to condescend yourself in such a way. You take them outside at the first hint of fall with a football and, 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 and you're going to let them tackle you. Why? Because you're a loving father who condescends. When you're arm wrestling... You let them win, not because they are stronger than you, but because you condescend to them. I'll never forget the day, and every father goes through this, when their son beats them at something that you take seriously. For me, it was chess. It was just a few years ago. That, to this day, bothers me, right? I, mean, I still remember the day I outran my father. That was a glorious day. It was a terrible day for him, but that's, that's his problem, not mine. And we all go through this, right? But we understand as, as a father that we, we have to condescend ourselves to our children. Moms, you do this. I mean, I was teasing earlier, but you do this. When your child is crying, you, you, you get down on, on your knee. You look them in the eye. You condescend yourself to, to their level, and you invite them in. When God dwells with his people, he does so through the means of condescension. It lies at the heart of the gospel, does it not? That God would condescend to the point of putting on flesh. Paul Levy in the Table Talk magazine wrote this quote, The greatest and most wonderful example of God's condescension is the in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. God became man who took on flesh. The creator became a creature. The one who hung the stars lay helpless in a manger. The one who we teach our children is so big, so strong, and so mighty, became so tiny, so weak, and so powerless. The king of the angels was made lower than the angels we read earlier. The creator creator of time entered time. The one whose everlasting arms lay vulnerable in his mother's arms. This is the beauty of the gospel. And this is the thought that Solomon is meditating on. God is not bound to a building. That is, he understood this. But he dwells with his people by the means of this building. He condescends himself so that we may be invited to his presence. Isn't that good news? Paul made a similar point about Christ in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. I think Lewis had something similar. It says that the Son of God became a man so that men can become sons of God. We see the condescension here. Thomas Watts, the early Puritan, and the systematic theology called a body of divinity makes a similar point. Quote, he was poor, 
that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we may be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we may lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us up to heaven, that the ancient of days should be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle. He who rules the stars should suck his thumb, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman and that woman which he himself made, that the branch should bear the vine, the mother should be younger than the child she bare, and the child and the womb bigger than the mother, that the human nature should not be God, yet one with God. Come, he concludes, and worship. And that is exactly what it is that Solomon does. He begins here with the condescension that God has come down to be with his people. And here, starting in verse 14, is the consecration of the temple by which he draws us in. He invites us in to be with God. Notice it there in verse 14. Then the king turned and blessed all the assembly of Israel, where all the assembly of Israel stood. Notice the repetition for emphasis. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, we don't have time to explore this. You can go in more detail at the first of the year, but we actually spent an entire week just on the word bless. Because the word bless is the word we use in Christian circles. Most of us have no idea what it actually means, unless, of course, you're from the South. And the South has a different meaning of the word bless than the Bible does. If, if, you are from, if you're a Yankee and someone from the South says bless your heart, that could be a good thing. It could be a kind thing. It could be a pejorative. And you will never know the difference because you ain't from around here, Yankee, right? Right? It's, 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 a, it's a rather loose word we use. But in the Bible, it has specific meanings. For example, it, it could mean covenantal favor. Covenantal favor. The first, uh, this, this, this meaning describes a vertical covenantal uh, relationship with God, which is why its meaning is dominated in the early books of the Bible. For example, in the covenant with Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you, God says. This is the covenant with Abraham. It is repeated in chapter 17. I will bless her and give you a son also of her. It is Abraham. Sarah, yes, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of the people of her, right? So you see that the idea of blessing brings with it covenantal favor. And so we receive the blessing of God by faith in the promises of God. The other meaning or second meaning of blessed in the Bible is human flourishing, if the first describes the vertical covenantal uh, 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 favor of God, the second describes horizontal human experience that is brought about through wisdom. A man can be blessed in the context of redemption, but due to foolish decisions and lack of virtue, he can suffer the consequences of his foolishness. And we want not just the vertical blessing, we want the horizontal blessings of God. This is why when you read the literature, uh, uh, Proverbs, Psalms, and others, you'll see this meaning of blessed all over the place. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, right? Notice that to be blessed, this is not a covenantal blessing. This is the issue of wisdom. You walk in the ways of God. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Same thing in Proverbs 3. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. So you see that you can have the covenantal favor of God, yet suffer the consequences of your foolishness. But we don't just want covenantal favor. We want to flourish as humans under the banner of the all-wise God. But there's a third meaning here of the word bless, and that is the idea of worship. The first tells us 
that those who are in relationship with God are blessed. The second tells us those who live by wisdom and virtue are blessed. The third is similar to the word glory in that we give back that which we have received. We actually did this earlier in worship. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We could say, bless the Lord from whom all blessings flow. Remember that the glory of God is manifest and it is shared with us as intrinsic. And therefore we glorify God. We give him back that which we have received from him. The idea of blessing is the same thing. We bless the Lord who is the God of all blessings. We give back that which he has given us. So to give you an example of this, Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Notice here the idea is that of worship, to bless the Lord. And I think Solomon really has all three of these uh, in in mind. Because you'll notice the language. He blesses Israel, and he speaks of the covenant of David, right? So you have the covenantal favor. You also have that he he is the wise king is giving the blessings of his wisdom to Israel. Look, we we have put together this temple so that God may dwell with us. But then then it turns around there in verse 14 and says, he blessed the Lord. I really think it's all three meanings here in this text. But notice the content of his blessing begins in verse 15. The thesis is given right there in verse 15. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he's promised with his mouth to David, my father. Notice that Solomon's blessing to God is on the account that we worship a God who is dwelling with his people, who has kept his promises. He has kept his promises. Now, there's a fancy word we have to discuss here. The fancy word is anthropomorphism. It'll be on your quiz at the end. Anthropomorphism is when we give human attributes to non-human things, like the, uh, um, the trees uh, uh, sway in the wind or something like that. Uh, uh, we do this in the Bible all the time. In fact, verse 15 has it. We speaks of the hand of God or the mouth of God. Does, does God have five phalanges with bones and muscles and tissue? I don't think so. But you understand what is being communicated when you speak of the hand of God. Does God have lips? And does he need chapstick? I don't know. But we do know what is meant by the mouth of God. And so he is borrowing this sort of theological language so that the reader can make, make sense of it. But his main point is clear. Blessed be the God, the God of Israel, who with his hand he has made promises and with his mouth he has delivered it. God is a God who's made promises and he has fulfilled them. Read it all the way back to Genesis and God has promised a people to be a land, a people to be a nation, a people to be a blessing. And now Solomon is here at the foot of the temple by which he has constructed. And and he, he wants us to see that God hasn't only dwelt among us, he dwells among us because he promised he would. We worship a God who is not fickle in his commitments. He is faithful in his promises. Notice the grounds of this. If the thesis is God has kept his promises, the grounds are given in verse 16 and then then in verses 17 to 20. The first ground is that God chose slaves. He chose slaves, verse 16. Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes in Israel to build a house that my name may be there. Notice he begins with Moses when Israel were slaves. Despite Israel being enslaved to mighty Egypt, God rescued them. He didn't just rescue them. He made them a promise. And God promised them them the same thing he promised Abraham, a line and lineage and his presence. And here we have at the foot of the temple, 
There, as God's glory fills the Holy of Holies, we have descendants of slaves chosen by God, whom He has loved with an eternal love. But not only has He chosen slaves, but secondly, He has adopted sons. That's verses 17 and 20. He now moves to consider David, and David's all over this passage, rightly so. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord. By the way, the name of the Lord is, is, is God Himself, the God of Israel. But of course, the Lord said, not David, but your son. And so Solomon sees, I believe here, that he's saying, I am the son of David whom, whom God put in David's heart, but he gave it to his son. Not his firstborn son, not his preeminent son, but the son that everyone wanted to overlook at because of his conception. So too, Israel, you are slaves who have been adopted as sons. Read the Exodus story again. It's all over the place. God has adopted us into the family of God. No wonder he condescends. No wonder he wants to be with his people. No wonder here in this text he is inviting us in. Here is the temple, Israel. Would you not come? Will you not come to be in the presence of God? God chooses slaves. God adopts sons. And it comes to a head there in verse 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promises that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I've provided a place for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord made our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. What is the, what is the point? Is that God has fulfilled his promises and he will dwell, we saw earlier, with his people forever. After all, isn't that what Solomon is doing here? He is drawing our attention back to the Ark of the Covenant where God sits above the cherubim's wings. Solomon wants Israel to remember. God is with us. God will never forsake us. God is with us forever. And here he invites the reader in. Will you not come? God assures us, does he not? That because of faith as a result of the cleansing work of the Lamb, we are invited in. Come. The God of promises says he will, he, will, he will receive you. He will welcome you. He will love you. The God of assurance. That's the whole point of the text. He condescends so that we as his children might fall into the arms of a loving God. It's all Solomon wants us to see. He is the God of promises who draws any and all sinners who would come. He invites them in. In the 16th century, Wittenberg, Germany was at the heart of the Reformation Revolution. Luther had just translated his Bible in the German, which was a capital offense, actually. There was a little girl who worked in the Wittenberg Press. And, of course, uh, the, the, the printing press had only been around for 100, 200 years. And so it was a new technology that had really revolutionized the world. The little girl was working in the printing press there in Wittenberg, Germany, and, and she was having her own spiritual crisis. She was afraid of God. She viewed God as angry and vindictive, and, and, and she is unworthy of his fatherly love. And as she was sweeping up the uh, printing room there, she, she saw a folded piece of paper there on the ground. And she happened to pick it up, and, and it was just a part of a piece of paper. And all it said was, for God so loved the world that he gave. She grabbed it, put it in her pocket, and went about her life. And 
Her mother, days later, had noticed that something had changed in her little girl. She wasn't as, as depressed. She wasn't as anxious. She, wasn't, she was different now. And so she asked her, her daughter, well, something's changed. What, what is going on with you? And she says, well, I found the scrap piece of paper on the floor. And she pulled it out. She read it to her mother. For God so loved the world that he gave. And the mother asked the obvious question, what did God give? And she says, I don't know. But if God has given anything, we don't have to fear him anymore. Little does she know, she was right on the cusp of the kingdom of God. God has given us his son. So that having been cleansed of our sin, he invites us in with relationship to him. And he assures us, he is with us. He will forever be with us. And he invites everyone who will come to come. Come to be with him. Come find salvation for your souls. Come find joy in your life. Come find a father like you've never had. Come find an everlasting love that is unshakable and not fickle. Come, all who would come. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be so kind.